John 9, 1 through 12. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then, how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. This is a very well-known passage for many people, John chapter 9. It brings together the second I am statement, I am the light of the world, with the sixth sign in John, the healing of the blind beggar. And there are two points that John wants to make in this passage. Number one, he wants to show you the true miracle, the true miracle that's not just a physical miracle, but another miracle that you'll see. And secondly, he wants to show you markers of those who have true sight. So let's jump into the text and look at it together. Kiddos, if you're listening to me, I want you to listen for three things. I want you to listen for a story about a slave trader. I want you to listen to a story about someone who broke their neck. And I want you to think and write down or make a note or a tally of every time that I use the word blind or something that has to do with sight, seeing, saw, seeing, light, blindness. Every time I talk about blindness, sight, or light, just make a little note somewhere where you're listening and count them up and let me know how many of those you can count. Let's look at the text. First of all, we see the miracle that John wants us to see. In, in John chapter 9, um, Jesus heals a man born blind. Now, Jesus healed lots of blind people. In fact, scholars say that Jesus healed more people of blindness in his earthly ministry than any other ailment, more than people who were lame, more than people who were crippled, more than people who were deaf. He healed people who were blind. And this, this um, wouldn't come as any surprise to you if, if you were a, a good Jew listening to the story for the first time because when Jesus taught at the synagogue, the very first time he preached in public, what did he do? He, he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, and, and he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Later in his ministry, when the disciples of John John the Baptist, his cousin, they came to Jesus and, and they said, who should we, should we tell John that you are? 
Are you the Messiah? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, go tell John that the blind received their sight. Now, Jesus healed lots of people of blindness in his earthly ministry. It was, in fact, a source of opposition for him. When Jesus is being condemned by the Pharisees, you know, what, they think that he has a demon, and then they defend the position. They say, well, no, he couldn't possibly have a demon because demons can't cure people of blindness. Blindness was like one of the worst things you could possibly imagine having happen to you. When Lazarus, Jesus' friend, died, a passage we looked at recently, what did they say of Jesus? Could this possibly be the Messiah? I mean, the guy can heal the blind. Certainly he could raise him again from the dead. Blindness is, is important in the life of the ministry of Jesus. But this is the only place in the Gospels that we read that Jesus healed a man who was born blind. And John wants us to, to see that the real miracle the real miracle of the story is not this man's physical blindness, but it was actually this man's spiritual blindness that Jesus ultimately heals. You know, there's one, there's one thing that you can definitely know when you're a preacher and you're a young preacher and you're starting out in your ministry, if you ever have to lead a, a funeral. And I remember the very first funeral that I led, I... Um, as many of you can imagine, being new at your calling, I didn't know what songs to sing. But I knew there was one song that everybody, no matter where they've been, no matter if they were in the church or had never gone into the shadow of a church their entire life, there was one song that they know how to sing. What's that song? Amazing Grace, right? Because it has that great line, I once was blind, but now I see. That story was written, that song was written by John Newton. John Newton lived from 1725 to 1807. John Newton was, was raised the son of a Navy merchant sailor. His mother died when he was almost seven years old. And John went to the high seas with his father and later went to the British Navy himself. And he was, the, he was not exactly a man of model character. He was disciplined when he was in the Navy. He was demoted to the rank of just a, a common seaman, and he convinced his superiors, not really knowing where to put John Newton, to put him on a slave ship and let him lead the slave ship. And so he did. And John Newton led for many, many years these slave ships uh, off of West Africa. And one day in a storm, a terrible storm, John Newton begged God, begged God and said, God, please save me out of this storm. And the cargo shifted and plugged a hole in the hull of the ship. And God saved John Newton's life. And John, that day, he said that was the night of his conversion. And he began to read the Bible. And it was the stories of people who were blind and healed that he most resonated with. And so John Newton, the slave trader, later wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. This place in Jerusalem where this happens is near a place called the Pool of Siloam. Now, the Pool of Siloam, John tells us in the passage, means sent. It was literally where all the water uh, in the tunnel that Hezekiah built to provide nourishment for the city of Jerusalem was sent. It was the repository for the drinking water. And beggars would come. People would come to collect their waters. Beggars, people who were blind, would come around that pool. And Jesus, after he heals this man, says, I want you to go. 
I want you to go to the place that the water is sent. I want you to go to the place where healing is sent. In the early church fathers, Chrysostom and Augustine, when they read these passages, uh, they, they thought about the way that Jesus, of course, in his incarnation was sent from the Father. That Jesus was the sent one. That Jesus was the true pool of Siloam. That Jesus was the true place of healing where, where God sent us his son so that we might be healed not of our physical blindness but of our true spiritual liability, our spiritual blindness. That as we don't see our condition rightly unless God cleanses us by the sent one, unless we go to the pool of Siloam just like this blind beggar was sent by the one Jesus who was sent by God to extend the good news to you and to me. And so when he goes to the pool of Siloam, he washes in that pool, just like we wash in the waters of baptism and we come into the community of Christ's church and we believe. He washes us of our sin and makes us new and gives us sight to see ourselves rightly. This also happened in the life of the blind beggar. And John mentions this very interesting um, treatment plan of Jesus when he heals the man. Did you notice it in the text? It said that Jesus, having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with saliva. (laughs) What's up with that? In the season of social distancing, we've all heard a whole lot more about spit and saliva than we probably care to share with other people. We know it can be aerosolized. We know that there are droplets. We know that saliva is the way that viruses are spread. But you know what else is spread? When you speak, saliva proceeds from your mouth. I know that kind of sounds um, um, different, right? It kind of sounds a little off-putting in church to say it that way. But that's what we've heard our officials say. Our, our, Our saliva is literally aerosoled when we speak. And what Jesus is doing by mixing saliva and mud together is he's reminding us that he's taking us all the way back to the time when his word mixed with mud created something beautiful. God created everything out of nothing. He didn't work with some preformed matter. He just spoke and the world came into being. And out of the mud, he formed Adam and he formed Eve. And it was in the Garden of Eden that Jesus is trying to take us back to. He's trying to help the Pharisees recognize that Jesus is recreating right in their very midst with his own spit and mud as he applies this mud to the eyes of this blind beggar, reminding us that the Lord takes us back to the garden to help us see our true spiritual disability. What was it in the garden that got Adam and Eve in trouble? Was it their hearing? No. Satan came to them and said, did God really say that you shouldn't eat or or, um, touch this fruit? And then it says in the passage that Eve, what? What did she see? She saw it. She saw the fruit was good for eating. She saw it through her eyes. And it was through her eyes that led her to take of the fruit. And Adam followed. And since then, we've been spiritually blind ever since. And the only one who can truly see the Lord Jesus has come, the sent one. He has come to restore not only physical sight, according to his will, but spiritual sight. He has come to give us eyes to see. Because the one who is blind must 
see. And the true miracle in this story in John chapter 9 is not merely about a man who was healed of his sight, although that is a miracle indeed. But the deeper remedy for us, the deeper liability, the deeper disability that needs to be addressed is the remedy, of course, of Jesus who comes for us, who gives us the ability to spiritually see. Do you have eyes to see that? It was precisely because our first parents saw that led them into temptation that actually caused our spiritual blindness. And it's only precisely because Jesus Christ, the one who brings the true perspective back to us, who truly sees us as we are, welcomes us by his electing covenantal love and says, I will restore your sight if you can only see that you have a profound disability and that disability is called your sin. So what are the markers of one who has true spiritual sight? If the miracle is spiritual sight, not just physical sight, what are the markers of one who has true spiritual sight? Well, the first marker is that a person who has true spiritual sight begins to ask fewer horizontal questions. It begins to ask more vertical questions. What do I mean by that? Somebody who is blind spiritually finds themselves in a time of great tragedy or finds himself in a, um, in a moment of great loss or um, with a situation into which they're born that's very, very difficult, like blindness. And they stop asking as many horizontal questions. Why me? This isn't fair. How could you do this, God? And they start asking different questions. They start asking, Lord, what do you want to do out of this situation? How do you want to apply mud and saliva to me? How do you want me to be shaped and molded by this experience? Their questions stop being horizontal, and they start becoming more vertical. And, and you know this in your own life. Whenever you suffer a setback, or you face a job change, or you, you, you're filled with fear, at some point, those horizontal questions run out. And that is when acceptance of your situation and a true contentment, if you're a Christian, with God's prevailing presence in your life, comes to become real for you. Because you stop asking, why, why did this happen to me? And you start asking, Lord, what do you intend to do with me in the midst of this? How do you want to extend your glory for your namesake? Um, my, family, um, my family loves to jump on the trampoline. And the other day, we were jumping on the trampoline together, and it was one of these cool days, you know, this week where, the, where if you're in the sun, it feels warm, and it's, it's, it feels great. But if you're in the shadows, you're in the shade, it's cool. And so my children were sitting there on the trampoline, the trampoline under a giant elm tree, and the elm tree cast a shadow. And one of my children were, was on the side where it was in, in the shadow, and they were cold. And they were putting their jacket on. And the other side of the trampoline, it was the sunny side, and my child was taking their jacket off. And it was interesting to me to think that there are people who are born on the sunny and the shadow side of the realities of this life. Because the shadow of sin extend into our life and into our situations, irrespective of our personal choices sometimes. Undoubtedly, sin has consequences, no doubt. But in this situation of my kiddos on the trampoline, my child who was in the cold, in the shadow, did nothing different than the child who was in the sunlight. They, they, they were there on the same trampoline. 
And in the same way, sometimes we experience um, tragedies in our life that aren't necessarily a reflection of our personal sin or the consequences of personal sin. They're a reflection of the realities of us being born in a sinful world. And it's tempting if you find yourself in that situation to ask, why, God, this isn't fair? When you were born on the shadow side or you happen to live for that moment on the shadow side of the trampoline, as it were, where it's chilly, where you want to grab the coats to keep you warm, where your experience is only magnified by the fact that your neighbor is in the sun and seems to be shedding clothing and you're cold. This happened, of course, in the greatest example of Scripture outside of Jesus, um, Job, didn't it? Where Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, Job's friends, come to Job and they, they say to Job, what did you do to cause all this tragedy in your life? And then the pitch hitter Elihu comes in at the end and says, oh yeah, Job, what did you do? And Job says, I didn't do anything. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a story of a teenage um, young woman who, when she was 19 years old, about 50 years ago, was um, celebrating with her high school friends, and she, she jumped into a lake. And as she dove into this lake, she didn't see that the bottom was far shallower than she thought. And when she hit the bottom of the lake, she, her, she heard a crack in her neck, and her neck broke. And they pulled Joni Erickson Tata onto the deck of that uh, lake, and they ran and got help, and the ambulance took her to the hospital, and Joni Erickson Tata found herself at 19 years of age, paralyzed completely from the neck down, active, athletic, beautiful, facing the reality of the shadow side of life. And Joni Erickson Tata could have asked horizontal questions, why me? And indeed, there was a time when she did, God, Why? What are you doing? But Joni Erickson Tata began to ask vertical questions almost immediately. What are you doing? What do you intend to do with my life? And Joni Erickson Tata is the one that says, if you ever want to wear a crown, you must first bear a cross. If you ever want to experience um, the beauty and the grandeur of God, you have to learn that Joni Erickson Tata famously has said that sometimes God allows what he hates in order for him to extend the power of his healing presence. Joni Erickson Tata went on to be the leader of an amazing ministry to special needs families across the globe, Joni and friends. Joni Erickson Tata taught herself how to paint again, not by using her hands or her feet, but by using her mouth as she held the brush. Joni Erickson Tata began to be this beautiful display of God's power. She, she didn't ask the horizontal questions. She began to ask the vertical questions. And I wonder this morning if you can ask those same kinds of questions. Would you move past asking those horizontal questions and begin to ask the vertical questions? This man certainly did. He began to leap with joy. He began to, the Pharisees questioned him. They said, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? And notice, Jesus doesn't go there. He says it was neither this man nor his parents. It was so why? It was so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. 
so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Jesus took the horizontal questions and he stretched them vertically and he said, I'll tell you why this happened. So that the glory of God could be manifested in this man's life in ways that you would never have known had this experience not happened. So the first mark of somebody who has spiritual sight is they begin amidst all of their, their tragedies, all of their injustices, all of their experience of the shadow side of life. They begin to stop asking the horizontal questions. And they begin to, be at, to ask their vertical questions. Are you with me? The second mark of someone who has spiritual sight is that they are profoundly humble. Notice that in this passage, if you read all the way down through the end of the chapter, all the way down through verse 41, every question that the Pharisees ask this man, how does he respond? <laughs> I don't know. How did this happen to you? I don't know. Where's Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. I just know I can see. I just know Jesus did it. The Pharisees answer every question with confidence. They answer every question with answers that they're pretty sure that they know are correct. They exhibit a kind of pride when they're asked the questions. And this man, humbly healed, begins to reveal his ignorance and begins to just say, I don't know. But in the presence of Jesus, I don't really care. He's healed me. There's a profound, profound sense of humility. I had a friend in college. Her name was Cindy Schulte. Um, she, was, um, she was cool, and she was Greek before a big, fat Greek wedding came out. And when I was in campus ministry or did college ministry in North Dallas years ago, she helped me as one of my volunteers. She worked for DeWalt, and her job was to go to every Home Depot and every Lowe's in North Central Texas and make end caps for DeWalt. And if you've seen these end caps when you go to Home Depot, it's the thing that, you know, or Lowe's, it's the, the very end of every row where they put the best products, right? That's like prized real estate in these shops. And so Cindy would, would set up all of this DeWalt equipment. And um, she was a great friend to have because she gave you free DeWalt stuff. But she, when she set this end cap up, she would basically be saying, look at DeWalt. Look at all this stuff. It's amazing. Your life and my life is like an end cap before the world. But what you choose to put on the end cap says a lot about you. And Christians are people who don't put their strengths on the end cap. They actually put their liabilities on the end cap. They say that, man, I came from a divorced home. But that strengthened me in so many ways and taught me about my house, taught me about my life. Or I, I've got this serious physical impalement. But it's because of this that I've learned these things about the Lord in ways I never would have learned otherwise. Christians are those who stand on the end caps, if you will. They, they put their, their lowest foot forward. We serve rather than demand to be served. We move toward people who have lost their jobs rather than recoil in fear that we might lose our own. We give out of our generosity rather than be Scrooge McDuck worried about losing the resources that are God's with whom he has shared with us to begin with. The second mark of spiritual sight is that not only, not only do you begin to ask vertical questions, but also you're profoundly humble. And thirdly, the third marker of spiritual sight in this passage is that you see the need and you work the works. 
You see the need and you work the works. Notice in the text what it says. Jesus says in verse 4, it says, who was it that sinned, this man or his parents? And what did Jesus say? He says, it's not this man or his parents that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. Has that ever bothered you? Don't you mean Jesus? Don't you mean I must work the works of my Father who has sent me? That's not what John says the text that Jesus said. Because that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me. You just heard earlier Pastor Scott talk about the importance of us building each other up in the body of Christ, of strengthening the work of the saints. And here you see the decentralization of ministry in the Gospels. We must see the need and we must work the works. It is not about a gifted brother or sister to your right or to your left. It's about, it's about you. It's about me knowing our calling with spiritual sight, moving toward those in need, working the works, as it were. What does that mean? It means that if you have spiritual sight, you don't wait for somebody else to go help your neighbor. That's what it means. It means if you have spiritual sight, you don't wait for uh, the paid clergy to go move towards somebody and minister. That's what it means. It means if you have spiritual sight, it means you yearn and long to see the lost come to know Jesus. You, learn for, you yearn for those who are blind to then have sight, to see with new eyes. That's what it means. It means that you know your calling. It means that you know yourself well enough in order to know how you're gifted. And if, if um, you've never felt like you've ever used your gifts... Then, then please call me. Come meet with me or Pastor Scott or one of our elders and let's talk about those stories in your life when you felt affirmed and felt encouraged. Let's listen to what others who know and love you well say about you and let's put you in a position where you can walk in the strengths of your gifts, not with an insecurity about your liabilities. Let Jesus take care of those. But walk in the power of the Spirit in your gifts so that you can work the works because Jesus has sent us. We must work the works who sent us while it is still day because it won't always be day. Jesus said, while I am still with you, while it is still day, because he knew that he would soon die. And when he ascended to heaven, he left us the Holy Spirit in order for what? in order for us as his church to be his hands and feet on earth now, empowered by his Holy Spirit. Like, isn't that amazing? That Jesus at the right hand of the Father has equipped us by the power of his Holy Spirit to extend his transforming presence through our gifts and our presence now. That's amazing. So people who have spiritual sight are marked by, number one, they don't play the victim. They ask vertical questions. God, what do you intend to do? How can your glory be magnified? How can we work the works of those you have sent? Number two, they're profoundly humble. They're melted by the amazing good news that we did nothing to earn salvation. But we had faith in the only one who could possibly have healed us, the Lord Jesus. And three, we see the need and we work the works. We move toward others in the profound time of need. We are the ones who take initiative. We don't wait for others to do it. We are the ones who take leadership. We don't wait for others to do it. We are the ones who move, who set the pace. 
who establish the course, who extend God's hands of healing. Now, the true miracle in this passage is not merely somebody receiving physical sight, but spiritual sight. Then the offer stands for you. Do you have spiritual sight? Have you ever come to a place in your life when you realize that you were blind spiritually by the darkness of sin? Your Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who created the world, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, steps toward you and says, I am the light of the world. Would you like to see? And only you can answer that question. Would you believe in him? Would you trust him? He wants you to be washed in the healing pool of Siloam, the healing pool of his presence. And secondly, would you walk in light of the marks of those who have spiritual sight? Do you get to ask questions how you can praise the Lord? How can I see how God's at work in me, even through circumstances and tragedies that were very, very difficult or are very, very difficult? Would you begin to see that Christ has given you everything that you need so you don't have to try to win every argument. You don't have to try to be proud. You can be humble. Because you know how much you measure against the infinite beauty and righteousness of your Savior. He comes to us. He yearns for us. He calls us his sons and daughters. And then lastly, let's go meet those needs. Let's do it. And the reason why we can do that is because there was another one who was covered with blood and mud who walked to Golgotha. And instead of spitting on the ground, this man was spit upon, mixed with blood, mixed with mud, to heal his sight. Jesus, covered in mud, covered in blood, walks to Golgotha, and he is spit upon, not as a medicine to heal him, but as a curse to destroy him. And he bore the mud and the spit of all of humanity for you so that we might see the true miracle in John chapter 9 and walk in light of it as his new creations and to find ourselves melted by that glorious and grand good news that he has come for us. John Newton, at the very end of his life, you may not know this, but it was very it's ironic that before John Newton died in 1807, what did the Lord um, call from him? His sight. And there the man who wrote Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. At the very end of his life, in 1807, lie, dying, blinded. But never more could he see clearly than at that moment when he recognized that he truly was a wretch, but he'd been saved by Amazing Grace. And though blinded physically, he could see more clearly than he could ever dream. You can too. Would you believe it? Let's pray together. Father, would you help us in this great story of Scripture about the man born blind, healed of his blindness, washed in the pool of Siloam to recognize that we too can be healed of our own spiritual blindness and we can be washed in the presence of our Savior, cleansed by the power of the one who was sent from the Lord, the Father, to cleanse us and all who would believe in the good news of the gospel. So, Father, would you allow that good and glorious news not to just be locked in our heads somewhere back here, 
not to just be easy believism off our lips, but would you allow it to change our life, to melt us, to make us humble, to help us to ask questions that are vertically oriented, not just horizontally oriented. Help us to ask the questions of how you intend to use us and help us to run after them as we see the need. Use our gifts to work the works, to experience decentralized ministry in light of the work of your great Savior, our elder brother, Jesus, who came for us, who loves us, and who offers again now for us to receive our sight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.